It has been quoted absolutely countless times. It has been nicknamed the Bible in miniature. It's also been nicknamed the golden text of the Bible. It's probably one of the two or three most well-known verses in the Bible. And of that very short list, it's notable because of the two or three most well-known verses in the Bible, it's probably the longest that people can quote or at least get very near quoting word for word. And for some very strange reasons, it's even been used at football games on signs. It is, of course, John 3 and verse 16. Those words spoken by Jesus to a Jewish leader named Nicodemus continue to provide a strong reminder of the glory of God as well as man's response. And you recall that in John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking to that man, Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and keep that simple fact in mind because we'll come back later in our lesson as something to remember. But that Jewish leader named Nicodemus, he was speaking about salvation in various ways, being born again, being born of water and of the Spirit. And as you come nearer to the verse we know so well, John 3 and verse 16, Jesus reminded this Jewish leader about an Old Testament account where the Israelites have been rebellious against God, and because of that, God had sent fiery serpents among them who bit the people. But God provided a way out. He told Moses to make that bronze serpent and to put it up in the midst of the camp. And as long as the people would look at that particular serpent, that bronze serpent, they would be healed. And so they did. And they were. And then Jesus said, just as those who looked at that bronze serpent all the way back those hundreds of years ago had found physical healing when they believed and obeyed, so those who looked to Jesus when he was lifted up would find not physical, but spiritual healing. And it's based upon that that you have the very first word of John 3 and verse 16, 4. Keeping in mind that salvation comes when Jesus was raised up upon the cross, then Jesus gave that great verse that we know so well, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. This morning, I want us to look at this verse. We're calling our lesson this morning, The Greatest Verse. And it's not because it's greater as far as it's a better verse. There are 31,000 some odd verses in the Bible. We know that all of them are given by the inspiration of God. But we're calling our lesson this morning, The Greatest Verse, because in this one verse... There are nine of the largest themes found in all of the Bible, all contained in one verse. And that's why, by the way, it's been nicknamed the gospel in miniature. What I want to share with you this morning are those nine themes. You're going to find nine things from John 3.16. I was told not long ago to never preach a sermon with more than five points because people can't remember more than five points. That's why you got a handout. Okay, there are nine this morning. But, we're going to, but you're going to remember the verse for sure. And I hope that we can shed some light on this beautiful verse that we know so well. And we can see why we call it the greatest verse. Again, not greatest in degree, but because of the themes found in it. In the first place, you have for God. God, of course, is the greatest being. There's a song that states so very well, There is no one like our God. God alone is holy. God alone is all-wise. God alone is all-powerful. He is the one who is almighty. God is love and light and justice and mercy and grace and all of those perfectly displayed and perfectly lived. 
when we utter the name of God, we are speaking the most wonderful and most powerful word that we could ever say. God is eternal. The Bible even begins by saying, in the beginning, God. That's how the book begins. And we should be overwhelmed by the very simple fact that the Bible does not take time to explain to us that truth. It simply sets forward the truth that God exists. In the beginning, God. He was there before what we know as the beginning. And there is no reason to question or debate that fact. But add to that, that this eternal and this all-powerful God is also a father and one who desires a relationship with us. When we put those two thoughts about God together, that He is all-powerful, eternal, almighty, and that He is a loving Father who wants a relationship with us, when we put those two things together, we should be overwhelmed. Our minds should just be amazed by who He is. There was a Scottish theologian many years ago named John Bally. He taught at Edinburgh University. And he would teach a class on the doctrine of God. And that had to be a very simple class, right? An entire course on the doctrine of God. But it said that when he began that course every term, they would open the class by saying these words to his students. He would say, We must remember in discussing God that we cannot talk about him without his hearing every word we say. We may be able to talk about others behind their backs, but God is everywhere, yes, even in this classroom. Therefore, in all our discussions, we must be aware of His infinite presence and talk about Him, as it were, before His face. God is everywhere, and God is a Father. He is the great I Am. When He told Moses to say that to the Pharaoh, the people who were in Egypt, rather, the word I Am means the all-eternal One. It can also be translated, I was who I was. It can also be translated, I will be who I will be. Every respect, every attribute about God is perfection. He is the greatest being. For God so loved. Love is the greatest attribute. It's no wonder that the word love found in John 3 and verse 16 is a form of that word agape, the one that we know so well. And by the way, tonight in our one word lesson, we're going to think about love. We're going to study that word agape a little bit more. It's that kind of love that not only sacrifices, but it's the kind of love that seeks the ultimate best for someone else. It's the word that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the one we often call the love chapter, because in that chapter Paul takes the time to give that full description, that full picture of how agape love expresses itself. And again, tonight we'll actually look through that chapter a little more carefully. You've probably heard it said that if you read through 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind and so forth, and if you took out the word love and put your own name in there, would that chapter still be true? But have you ever thought about the fact that if you took the word love out of 1 Corinthians 13 and inserted the name of God, it would always be true. God is patient and God is kind. God seeks no wrong. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing. God only rejoices in truth and on and on through every description found in those verses. And that's true because 1 John 4 and verse 8 very simply states God is love. The kind of love that agape love is looks at others and sees their needs, but it also expresses itself as best it can to meet those pressing needs. And it looks beyond any any superficial way of making decisions of, of who to help. It simply helps 
It's freely given as much as possible. This kind of love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, rejoices not in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It's so important because it makes clear that we're not seeking just to make people happy, but we're seeking to meet their most important, their ultimate needs. And people need to see their most pressing need is Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what makes John 3.16 so wonderful, is that God provided the solution before we ever even knew we had a problem. That's how much He loved us. Agape love is the greatest attribute. For God so loved the world, the greatest recipient. God did not just send His Son into the world to pick and choose a few who were worthy of the sacrifice that He made. Instead, He offered His Son as a sacrifice for anyone and everyone who has ever, is, or will ever live. John, the same one who authored these words or wrote these words down for us, would later write three letters. We know them as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 2, he began that chapter by saying, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus became our sacrifice but He offered Himself for all. And that once again speaks to God's love because God could have just chosen out or just walled off a few people and said, these are sinners, but they're not really that bad, and so they're the ones who deserve the sacrifice of my Son instead of everyone. But instead, He offered everyone, He offers everyone who has ever lived the opportunity of salvation through Christ. You can look on your phone or online when you get home and find world uh, population counters and try to estimate exactly the world population up to the second, but you know it's well over 7 billion now. And those who study such things project that somewhere slightly beyond the year 2020, if you can believe it, there will be as many people alive as have ever died. Somewhere between 9 and 10 billion. Will that be true? Now, I don't know if all those numbers and projections are true to the exact number, but I do know this. However many people have ever, are, or will ever walk on the face of the earth, Jesus died for them. The world is the greatest recipient because it is every person. That's amazing. For God so loved the world that He gave, and giving is the greatest action. Paul said on Mars Hill that God gives to all men life and breath and everything. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. James would remind us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Our God is a giving God. Now we know that. But I want to suggest to you that giving is the greatest thing any being, including God, could ever do. Giving is the greatest action because it makes us as humans prove who we really are. We say we're people of love, but until love gives of itself, it hasn't found its truest expression Giving is the greatest action because it requires us to look for and meet needs of others. If we turn our attention away from ourselves and put it squarely on other people, we see things that people need and see things people want. But our focus is on the needs, what they most need. And giving is the greatest action because it meets those needs as best we can. We cannot meet every need of every person all the time. But whether it's with our money, whether it's with our time, whether it's with our prayers whether it's with our thoughts, whether it's with our actions and servant hearts, whatever it is, 
Giving is the greatest action. And in just the same way, God gave. God gave Himself to meet our greatest need, but He also gives all of our needs. Have you ever thought about the fact that sometimes the one who gives the gift is sort of sometimes left out of the story? They can sometimes be the forgotten person. They can be forgotten by maybe someone who's ungrateful, but that only increases how powerful the gift is. God gave to those who were sinners, yes, but Romans 5 and verse 10 makes it clear that God gave to those who were His enemies. How often do we fail to show gratitude for His gift, His gifts to us? But folks, even if we fail to show gratitude, that does not diminish in the least the gifts that God gives. In fact, Paul would describe it as an indescribable or unspeakable gift in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. I heard someone say one time that sometimes it's the unspeakable gift because we don't talk about it. That's not what Paul was saying. He was saying it is such a great gift that we cannot describe it. That's why some translations have his indescribable gift. For God so loved the world that He gave, and He gave His only Son. That is the greatest gift. Yes, God gives, and God gives all good things, and God gives everything we need. But the gift mentioned in John 3 and verse 16 is the greatest gift of them all, the gift of His only Son. You know, we who are children of God, we often use that terminology as Christians, we are children of God, and that is a wonderful gift in and of itself, to be known as children of God. But Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He is the only one who is full of grace and truth, John chapter 1 and verse 14. The words only begotten in John 3 and 16, as the old King James has it, really mean His unique Son. There's a unique relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son because Jesus was and is God. He is divine. He was with God from eternity past. Except for 33 years, as we reckon time, they have been together and in perfect unity in heaven. But for those three decades or so, God allowed His Son to come to this earth to change that relationship slightly because God took on flesh. He became Emmanuel. God with us. But more than that, He allowed Christ to come to this earth to fulfill a purpose that included going through the most awful and torturous thing any person could ever go through. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21 states, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of of God. You might also think of the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 53, by His stripes we are healed. Remember that when we read the accounts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are a couple of times where the Father speaks from heaven and He says, this is my beloved Son. And those statements were made primarily to point out Jesus to the people who are around, but they're also based upon fact that God and the Son share a wonderful relationship. And yet He still gave His Son, and He did so in our place. I'm told that if you were to look at a painting that Rembrandt painted called The Three Crosses, that those who study such things say that He painted it in such a way that your eyes are supposed to move in a certain pattern. And your eyes are drawn first, of course, to the center cross where Jesus was hanging in that painting. And then 
I'm told your eyes are drawn automatically to the crowd that's gathered around the foot of the cross. And you think about that for a moment. And Rembrandt painted that in such a way that you see expressions upon their faces and so on and so forth. But I'm told your eyes drift to the edge of the painting. And you catch sight of another figure painted there who's sort of hidden in the shadows. And what art historians and art critics suggest is that what Rembrandt did when he painted that painting was actually paint himself over in the shadows out of his own realization that he helped put Christ on the cross through his sins. Now, whether art historians, art critics are right about that or not, I don't know. But folks, you and I must come to the same realization. As we sometimes sing, it was my sin that nailed him there. This was the greatest gift of them all because it was a gift that provided a way out of our worst problem and the problem we could never get out of on our own. And it was wholly undeserved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever... And there you have the greatest number. Nicodemus was the first one to hear these words from the lips of Jesus. We mentioned that in the introduction. That's who Jesus is talking to. But you ever thought about the fact that here's a Jewish leader and a good man... But he's a Jewish leader who heard the word whoever. And you have to wonder if Nicodemus' ears didn't perk up a little bit and think, wait a minute, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? This was Jesus who came not just for the Jews. This is Jesus who came, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, to bring many sons to glory. As Paul would later write very famously, there is no longer Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile, some translations have. All are one in Christ Jesus. You know, a little later in his ministry, Jesus would make it clear when that would happen. He said in John 12 and verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. The cross was an instrument of punishment and shame. But Jesus totally changed that. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus changed that so much that you and I quite often sing words that no one before the crucifixion would have ever dreamed of saying, I'll cherish a cross. No one would have dreamed of saying that. But folks, I will cherish the old rugged cross. Jesus changed it. Yes, Jesus is the King of the Jews, but Jesus is also King of all kings. He spoke directly to a Jewish leader, Nicodemus, and was not ashamed to say, whoever, or as some translations have it, whosoever. He was not here only for the Jews. He was here to bring salvation for the sins of the whole world, and that includes you, and that includes me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes on Him, that's the greatest response. That's the greatest response. And sometimes it's here that we have to divert a little bit from John 3.16. We speak about belief for just a moment, and then we always have to throw in a disclaimer that Jesus had obedience in mind when He used the phrase, believes on Him or believes in Him. And here's what's sad about that. What's sad about it is that we have to teach that. You know, the Bible always assumes that belief, true belief, will lead to obedience. We shouldn't have to teach that. We should know that to be the case. Jesus did not have to give or list or delineate what we know as the entire plan of salvation as he was speaking in John chapter 3. Now, it's interesting. He had already, in a subtle way, mentioned baptism because he had talked about being born of water and of the Spirit, but he didn't have to do that yet. And there are a couple of reasons why. One, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. And so baptism was not 
in place yet as far as a requirement for salvation. Yes, Jesus would say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But that's found at the end of the book of Mark. Mark 16 and verse 16, after Jesus had died and overcome death through the resurrection. It was in preparation for Acts chapter 2 and beyond. But even beyond that and more importantly, Jesus did not have to lay out what we know as the plan of salvation because the Bible always builds upon true and deep-seated and convicting faith. If we truly believe, we do not have a problem doing what God requires, no matter what it is. True belief is the greatest response we could ever make because it's the foundation of anything and everything else we would do. That great hall of faith chapter, as you call it, Hebrews chapter 11, begins by stating faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And you know that that chapter goes on to describe all these amazing things that so many did by faith throughout that chapter. Noah constructing the ark and Abraham or Abram leaving his homeland and all the, Moses leaving the children of Israel and the people walking around the walls of Jericho and on and on and on it goes. But did you realize that the word faith as it's found over and over and over and over in Hebrews chapter 11 is a form of the exact same word found in John 3.16, whoever believes in him. We're not talking about two different things. We're talking about a belief that always leads to action. Always leads to doing what God requires. Now, I could ask the question this morning, do you really believe in Jesus? And I think all of us go, well, yeah. I mean, here I am on a Sunday morning, and of course. I even got dressed up for this, right? I mean, of course, of course I believe in Jesus. But may I ask it a different way? Am I completely and totally committed to doing everything he requires no matter what I might think about it no matter what someone else might tell me about it or no matter how difficult it might be that's what makes belief the greatest response for God so loved the world that he gave his only son who believes in him should not perish and perishing here is the greatest punishment It's almost shocking in a way. It's jarring for sure. And in such a positive verse, Jesus includes the thought of of death, sacrifice, love, belief, life, and and death. Now, I know he says should not perish, but he's talking about the fact that this perishing, this suffering is, is real. And isn't that how Jesus often worked? Jesus was not afraid to remind people that punishment is real, that hell is real, and it's really awful. He describes it here with the terminology of death or perishing. The original word, by the way, is one that literally means killing. But it's also interesting. The word can also mean to render something useless. And so by the first century, this word was often used to describe hell. Now, we will not die if we end up in hell in the sense of going out of existence. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a place of eternal punishment or eternal torture because death at its most simple level just means a separation. Our physical death is our souls separated from our body. Our spiritual death is we are separated from God. Eternal death is we are eternally separated from God. That's what it means. It talks about eternal death. But also think with me about that other definition, to render useless. Can you imagine living your entire life and then having, to etern- having eternity to consider how you wasted it? How useless it was. Remember in the story that Jesus told the rich man and Lazarus, one of the most jarring things ever said in Scripture is when the rich man is told, Son, 
Remember. Remember. And he would have eternity to remember. I know that hell is not a topic we like to think about. I don't either. But it's something we must consider. It's real. It's eternal. It's awful. And I can't use strong enough language to describe it. And though I don't like to say it, the Bible also makes it clear that most people will be there. We don't have to go there. But that road that leads there is far wider because people choose it so. But aren't you thankful that John 3.16 doesn't end there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. And that, of course, is the greatest reward. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus did not just talk about the negative, that, that there's perishing, but he also gives us both sides of the story. Yes, the punishment is real, the perishing is real, but there is an eternal reward in heaven. And here Jesus simply flips the metaphor. Having described hell as a place of perishing, he now describes heaven as a place of life. The word for life here is a word you may have heard someone's name before. It's the word Zoe or Zoe. When we lived in Nashville. We had a couple we loved so deeply. We lost a child at birth. And then found out they were going to have another child, a little girl. And they named that little girl Zoe. And the mother used to get so mad at me because I would pronounce her name Zoe because that's what it actually is. But they named her Life because of what they had been through. But the idea behind the word is not just life. The word literally means the very essence and the very fullness of life. Folks, we will never fully understand life until we're in heaven. We just won't. I don't care what your best day is here in this world. You still probably had to think about something that that stressed you out. Or you probably still had to think about something that was going to come in the future. Or you may have gone through even just 30 seconds of not feeling well just just for a moment. In heaven, none of that happens. It's the essence, the fullness of life. And it will be forever. It is everlasting life. We can have no greater reward. Think with me for a moment. God could have, could have given the gift of His Son only to give us a better life here, to give us a second chance here, and then that sort of be it. We have a nice and a faithful life, and I'm sure glad I met Jesus, and I've been a better person, a better husband, a better wife, or whatever it is. I've, I've, done, I've done better, and then this life is over, and that's the end of it all. Instead, God offers the greatest reward. Abundant life here, John 10 and verse 10 an eternal life in His presence forever. Richard Baxter said it well in a short poem when he said, My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with Him. Folks, we have that possibility because of God and His love. There may be verses in the Bible that you like more, that that brought you more comfort, that you memorized at an earlier age, but there are very few, in fact, there, are, there may not be any verses in all of the Bible that provide more information and more encouragement and more grand themes of the Bible in such an economy of words as John 3 and verse 16. For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest attribute, the world, the greatest recipient, that He gave the greatest action, His only Son, the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest number, believes in Him, the greatest response, should not perish, perish being the greatest punishment, but have everlasting life, the greatest reward. The only thing I can think of to ask this morning is simply this. 
has that verse become so common in our minds that we've forgotten to respond to it. You see, sometimes we know these things so well. We know certain verses or passages so well we really forget to take them into our minds and make sure, do I really believe in Jesus? Have I really responded to Him? Have I really made Him the Lord of my life? Have I really understood that there is perishing and there is eternal life and the decision is up to me because God has already done His part. He already sent His Son. He already did that out of His love. He loved me enough. And you've heard it said before probably countless times, you could take the world out of that verse, put your name there, and the verse will be just as true. But have you responded to it? I believe in Jesus. I'm so glad you do. But is there someone in this room this morning who's never put that belief into action? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But that, that's, that's, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Make this the morning. Brother or sister in Christ, maybe you have been baptized. You, you know John 3.16. You know it very well. You can quote it. You can quote it better than I can. And Maybe you find more than nine things. You look at Adam missed a whole lot in that verse. I'm sure I did. Is it making any difference in your life? Are you living that belief? No matter who you're around, no matter where you happen to be, and no matter what might be going on in the community or our society or anywhere else, it's my decision. It's your decision to believe. And God loved you enough to send His Son and to offer you the opportunity to believe. Will you do so as together we stand and as we sing?